Amen. Well, it's so good to be with all of you again. This is a great privilege for me to be able to, well, every time I get to open the Word of God and preach it is, is a privilege, but um, uh, you folks are, you are our neighbors. It's like walking to the neighbor's house and talking to them about the Lord. That's, that's how I feel here. Um, and so we are praying for you and for your pulpit committee and, and all that and everything. We're with you. I'm not really sure why in the world um, this passage has been on my heart in the last um, last few days as I've um, prayed about what to bring to you today. So I suppose the Lord will use it <laughs> as he does all of his word all the time. But if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> I wanted to bring a message this evening on the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ. Um, if you're counting based on his earthly ministry, this would be the first victory of Christ. It is what many would call the temptation of Christ, but I feel like that emphasizes the wrong thing. So I call it the victory of Christ. Uh, read it with me if you would. Um, you don't have to read it out loud, but uh, follow along with me if you would. In Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward in hunger. And when the tempter came to, uh, to him, he, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto them, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Uh, it's not my habit to pause after the reading of Scripture and pray, but... For some reason, I feel the need to do that tonight, if you would, pray with me. Father in heaven, <clears throat> I'm asking you for your blessing as we study this portion of scripture. I feel that there is something here that we need to gather, that we need to understand, and I pray that you would show it to us, that you would faithfully um, exposit your word to us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an important moment, clearly an important moment, in the life of Christ, what we've just read, the temptation of Christ, his first victory over the devil in his earthly ministry, if you will. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry, and it seems that this is very important to all of the gospel writers. Every gospel writer that records the baptism of Christ, with the exception of John, but he doesn't technically count. <laughs> the three that record the baptism of Christ... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all immediately follow it with the temptation of Christ. Very interesting fact. This seems to be connected, in fact, 
one with the other. Uh, John doesn't actually record the temptation of Christ or the baptism of Christ, but when Jesus shows up in front of John, John tells the whole crowd about he ha how he had baptized Jesus previously. So it doesn't actually show the account. It seems to be after Jesus comes back from the wilderness when John picks up the story in the book of John chapter 1. So in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, it's very important to them that after the baptism of Christ is included the first battle of Christ. Very interesting pattern because it seems to be that they're presenting Christ as the son of David, as the, as the promised king who comes in the line of David, the, the Davidic Messiah. Because if you'll read 1 Samuel and watch the life of David, you find that in one chapter, I believe it's 16 if I'm not mistaken off the top of my head, in one chapter, David is, uh, is anointed as king. David is anointed in one chapter, and it says that from then the Holy Spirit came upon him. So it's very similar to what happens when Jesus is baptized. Jesus is baptized by a Levite, John the Baptist, um, who is the son of Zechariah, the, the priest. Uh, he is, uh, when he's baptized, it's said that the Holy Spirit came upon him. It seems to be an unnecessary thing. You know, he's Jesus. He's, he's God. You know, he's already got the Holy Spirit. But it was important that this picture was displayed. And when the Holy Spirit came down, he, all, he also said that there was a, a, ver, a, a, a phrase that, that the Father said from heaven. You can read it right here in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 3. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, which... We can sometimes miss that the name David means beloved one. That's what the name David even means. And so here are the three aspects of, of the baptism of Christ. Jesus being um, inaugurated, uh, uh, if you will, for his ministry. And uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon him and his, his uh, likeness to David in that he's called the beloved son. Um, are all very clear here. And it seems that the gospel writers want their audience to know it, especially Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience. He wants his audience to pick up on the similarities here. And if you follow in 1 Samuel, it's the very next chapter, chapter 17, where, uh, where David fights Goliath. He, he now goes up against his first trial. Now, in David's life, this actually this probably took place years after his anointing. It was probably spread uh, apart by quite some space, but yet the Holy Spirit records it right together for us. And it seems that it's meant on purpose to be a picture of the coming Messiah who, after his baptism, goes straight into the wilderness to face his first battle. I mean, you know, of course, what happened at the first battle of, uh, of David when he fought Goliath. He didn't lose. <laughs> he won. It was... It was David's first victory. It was the proof that David was the, the powerful warrior that he did not appear to be on the outside. In fact, there's an interesting note about David. Uh, you know that when he killed Goliath, he did so with, um, without the support of his brethren. <laughs> his brothers wanted him to go home, leave him alone. Um, and uh, that's very much like Jesus in his ministry. His own people were the ones who put him to death, right? They were, he was without their support, that's for sure. Much of the life of David pictures Christ, even the fact that he was betrayed by a, by a very close friend later on in life and, and, uh, and, and many other things. But 
he killed Goliath, he also chose five smooth stones to kill the giants, but only needed one. Now you'd think, as Samuel or, or David probably rehearsed the, the story to Samuel, I don't think Samuel was there, but as the story was written down in 1 Samuel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you would think that David would just say, I grabbed a stone and I threw it at the giant. But David wants Samuel, as he writes it down, to remember that it was five stones that he chose, even though he only needed one. And it's not just because he didn't need all the stones he chose, because then he could have just said, I chose stones, plural. But he wants him to know it's five. Now, there's a very important number. The five is an important number to the Jews. They have a couple of important numbers. The number 40, the number 12. You know, the number 40 was how long they wandered in the wilderness. It speaks of, uh, of testing and trials. The number 12, the tribes of Israel. Elders, that's, that's how they did that. As a matter of fact, when David set up the the priestly, uh, the, the order of the priests, he said 24 of them, you know, a double of the number 12. Um, but the number 5 is important to the people of Israel because it is the number of the Pentateuch. It is the number of the books of Moses, the law, if you will. And you know that David really cared a lot about the law because he wrote, a, he wrote the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, about the law of God. It was very important to David, and it should be important to us, of course, but David seems to be countering this Goliath who says that he has rights to the land of Israel that God in the law said was the land of Israel by taking five smooth stones that seem to picture the law and killing him with the, with the things that picture the very law of God which he's, which he's defending. Uh, at least that's what it appears to, but he only needs one. And interestingly enough, Jesus, when he defeats the devil in this passage, we're going to find that he... Then he quotes scripture. In fact, he quotes all, the three passages he quotes are all from the Pentateuch. <laughs> They're all from the first five books of the Bible. And in fact, all three passages are all from the same one book of the five books of the Pentateuch. It's all from Deuteronomy. I think there is a, a purposeful, the, the way that this is written down is on purpose to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the, of the picture that David was. He is the David. He is the Messiah. I think that's very clear, and I think that's why every single gospel writer who includes the baptism immediately includes the temptation, and there's only one exception, and that's Luke. Luke gives us the baptism, and then because apparently it's so obvious that, that this is something significant, he pauses and gives the lineage of Christ and shows how he's related to David, and then gives us his, uh, his temptation in the wilderness. Because he wants us to know, guys, this is David here. This is, this is David. So now we see Jesus fulfilling what was clearly determined for him since the foundation of time. He is led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now there's much that we can learn from this, we, we, as much that we can understand about how the devil tempts us, the Bible says that we're not we're not ignorant of his devices. We're to be uh, we're to stand in Ephesians chapter six against the wiles of the devil. You know he's got he's got patterns, he's got plans. We can learn a little bit about that here, and I think I think that many men have have uh, very well pointed out that uh, you see him attacking. Much like uh, the scriptures tell us, the uh, world, the flesh, and the devil, 
how they like to attack the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. But I think that we find something perhaps more significant and maybe uh, intended by the authors as we walk through this. So if you will, we're going to walk through this verse by verse, if you don't mind. Verse number two, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. That's an interesting number because 40 days and 40 nights, well, in fact, it was the exact amount of time that Goliath spent challenging the children of Israel before David showed up to be him. Interesting number. But also, of course, it is for Israel the number that they associated with their wilderness wanderings. And here's Jesus uh, now wandering in the wilderness, um, fasting for 40 days as he is identifying with the people. He Remember that Jesus is God, but Jesus is also man. He is truly God and truly man. There is no... There is no Halfway God and halfway man. Uh, it's hard to say he's 100% God and 100% man, because that's 200%. He is just God, and he is just man. He is both at the same time. There is no, um, there is no um, lessening of either of the two. And Jesus uh, is a man of like passions as we are, if you will. He's, he's, he's hungry. 40 days in the wilderness fasting, he's hungry. He is led into the wilderness in order to identify with us. He's, he's, um, not, he's, not a, he's not a savior who's not touched with the feelings of our infirmities, as the scripture tells us. Verse 2, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward, he's hungry. <laughs> I would be too. Verse 3, then the tempter came unto him and said, If thou be the Son of God. Notice, Jesus has announced himself, though nobody has really caught it yet. <laughs> But by being in his baptism and in the, the message of the Father from heaven, saying, Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, it has been announced that this is the Messiah. This is, this is God's Son. This is God in human flesh. He, he's here. He's come. He's begun his work. And immediately the devil comes to test him. If only he could just get him to slip up in just one way. Well, the devil has his ways, and he's pretty good at what he does. He's been doing it for thousands of years. And so he starts kind of the same way he started with Eve. You know, if it worked for her, maybe it'll work for him. <clears throat> uh, probably not. But here we go. Verse 3, And when the tempter came unto him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, you claim to be the Son of God. Wait, did Jesus claim that? Yeah, no, God claimed that. And Jesus, of course, is God. But the Father claimed it from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Satan's right there to, to try to tear down that declaration. You know, this just sort of reminds me, I don't think it's the point of the passage, but it reminds me that when God is doing something, it makes Satan want to show up and do the opposite. I mean, that's sort of his pattern, right? You know, if you're ever tempted by Satan, this kind of indicates something good. He's really worried about what God's doing with you. He's like, man, I don't, I don't appreciate the fact that God's able to accomplish something with this person. Remember what God said to Satan in the book of Job, chapter 1. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And boy, did that make the devil upset. Why? Because he's, he's upset that God's able to use this guy. 
I can't believe that God's able to use him, that he's living right. Um, the devil is very annoyed knowing that God is going to accomplish a work. He is, his whole pattern, his whole job is to prevent God's plan from taking place. And so, though we know that he is the accuser of the brethren, he apparently leaves heaven for this, for this task. He leaves the accusal seat and comes down to the earth to tempt Jesus. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, on its face, we might say, why in the world is this a problem? What would, why would it be wrong for Jesus to tell stones to be made bread and eat them? He is God. He made the stones. He has every right to make them bread. And it wouldn't be wrong for him to, to, to make them bread. And well, he's hungry. So who's to tell him he can't eat? Remember, Christ is identifying with us. He is God and man at the same time. And so, in his identity with human flesh, it says in verse 1, he was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness. Meaning, the Spirit told him, go to the wilderness and fast. And what the devil was asking him to do was the opposite of what the Spirit told him to do. And of course, God and God is three persons, the, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. The devil is asking him to deny the Holy Spirit. This is an attack. We'll find that each of these three attacks are attacks on the Trinity of God. This is the devil attempting to attack each person of the Trinity individually. The devil does not like the Godhead. <laughs> not at all. In fact, he feels that he can be like God. Now, we'll try to make some application of this later, but follow with me the story that we're being told, the, the event, the true account of this, of this event. Verse 3, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. There's another reason in which the devil's claim seems to be reasonable. It seems to be sort of the natural thing to do. And that is because there is a prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy. I'll take you to it. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, if I wrote it down correctly. I've been known to write it down incorrectly. So hopefully when we get there, it's the right one. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is Moses speaking to the people. <clears throat> And uh, verse number 15. He says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. This is a, a prophecy about the Messiah saying that he is going to be like Moses. This is why when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was a it was a declaration to the people that he was the prophet like Moses who fed the congregation in the wilderness. He, he prayed to God and God sent the manna, right? In Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, I believe it is, 34, excuse me. When Moses dies, Joshua pens the last few verses of, of, uh, of well, probably the whole chapter of, Joshua, of Deuteronomy chapter 34, and it says this, um, verse 10, 
And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Joshua wants everybody to know, Moses prophesied that there was going to be another prophet like him, and we've not seen one. There's never been a prophet like Moses. In fact, uh, if you look throughout the Old Testament, even Elijah and Elisha, they never did the types of miracles that Moses did. They were used of God to do completely different miracles. And this is why it was so significant. This is why people said in John chapter 6, Hey, give us more, show us more miracles. Will you give us more food uh, like Moses did in the wilderness? They were shocked that he was doing what Moses did in the wilderness. This is exactly what the devil is commanding that he does. He says, listen, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Messiah, if you are the better Moses, then prove it. Make these stones bread. Well, First of all, Jesus doesn't owe any evidence to the devil. But verse, but this is, by the way, the devil's, you know, that's his pattern. He likes to accuse God, to say, no, you really aren't what you say you are. See, I caught you in a lie. See, he accuses the brethren before, before the throne of God. We know that from Revelation and chapter 12. Why? Well, I can only assume it's because he's saying, see, you saved that person. You've sealed their redemption, and yet they are sinning against you. Does not, not, not that make you an unjust judge? And of course, the blood of Christ pleads for us at that moment. Here we go. I've, I've stalled too long. Verse 4. <laughs> Jesus responds, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Watch these, this phrase very carefully. But by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of of God. This, as I said, is from Deuteronomy again, and this time in chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Probably should just leave my finger here in Deuteronomy, I suppose. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Notice the connection to manna when Moses wrote this verse. And he humbled thee, talking to Israel, he's re recounting what happened to Israel, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread only, but, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. I mean, it is amazing, except, of course, it's not surprising, but it's Surely amazing the way in which Christ handled the scriptures. I mean, he clearly is God. He had such an amazing understanding of the, of the minute details. What the devil was claiming is that he wasn't the son of man because he wasn't doing the miracle that, that Moses did. He wasn't producing the manna. And yet, he takes him to, the, to, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. He shows him this, in fact, is not... What is expected, instead, what is, what is said here is that man shall not live by bread alone. That's what the manna was all about in the first place, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And where do we find the words that proceed out of the mouth of God? Well, it's in the scriptures. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the, that the scriptures are uh, God-breathed. They are inspired by God. They are... The, the Greek word is theonoustos. They are breathed out by God. Uh, Peter wrote that uh, holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit 
when they wrote the words of it. People say, man, I really feel like the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. And, and I like to, if I'm not being too offensive to them, and, and if they, they understand what I'm, I mean, I like to say, oh, you mean you read the Bible? <laughs> because that's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. He's, he's given us his word. He's written it right down. We have it. And Jesus points when, when Satan attacks the leading of the Holy Spirit, who's led him into the wilderness to fast, Jesus points him back to the words of the Holy Spirit. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I'm telling you, there are layers upon layers of the meaning that Christ has packed into this, this one response to the devil. Uh, it proves not only that he surely is the Messiah and that he is God, but he knows his own word <laughs> very well. Um, but uh, that's no surprise. Verse 5, the devil takes him up to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, there's that challenge again, if you're really the Son of God. Now this is the only two times that he's going to make that challenge. To, if you're the Son of God, notice that before it was the Holy Spirit and the Father from heaven in chapter 3 at his baptism that confirmed that he was the Son of God. Now he's challenging them. He's already challenged the Holy Spirit and said, if you're the Son of God, then you know the Holy Spirit should let you go to, to make this, these stones bread. Now he's going to challenge the Father by saying, if you're the Son of God, if he's really your beloved Son, Father, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. This is a quotation from Psalm 91, which is about the man who, who stands in the presence of the Lord, the righteous man. And these are going to be the things that are true about the righteous man's life. God is going to protect him. Well, if you're the son of God, surely you're a righteous man, so jump off the temple. <laughs> which, which shows you that even the devil can use the Bible wrongly, right? Okay, Even the devil can misquote scripture. That's easy to do, and uh, I've seen many... True, genuine Christians with great heart <laughs> that have uh, fallen into that same trap, misquoting the Bible, purposefully ignoring the context and, um, in order to accomplish, usually, in my experience, they're intending to make a very good point. They've just made it from the wrong verse. <laughs> Someone says, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. So now I'm going to take the, I'm going to pray this before I take the free throw at the basketball. You know, that's not what I was talking about. So the point is, that the devil is familiar with scripture as well, but not clearly, not nearly as familiar as the Lord is. Because what he's doing here is telling Jesus to jump off the temple and force God, who's promised to protect him, to protect him the way that he wants him to protect him. Like, listen, you jump off the temple, you will force God's hand. He can't let you die. He has to save you. Now remember that Jesus is God, but he also is man at the same time. These things are hard to understand. I'm glad I have a God that I can't understand. My mind is rather small. <laughs> but, uh, but the Father has given Christ, the, the Son, the direction that he, is, that he is to live by. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, we see this over and over. He says, as the Father speaks, so do I speak. I'm just... I'm here following exactly what he tells me to do. Jesus even said, I don't even know the day when I'm returning. 
wait, how, how do you not know that, Jesus? You are, you are God. Well, because he was instructed by the Father not to know it. And so he followed the orders of the Father and did as the Father directed. It was the Father's direction. And so the Father is going to, of course, protect the Son and preserve him until the, the moment of, of his death that's planned on Calvary. He can't die. So go ahead, jump off the temple, prove that you're the Son of God. Make God prove it right here and now in front of everyone. And yet, this is forcing God's hand. It's what we call tempting God. So Jesus responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the next two responses are all from the same chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. <clears throat> We'll start in verse 15, just to see the progression of the chapter. Uh, For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among thee. Lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee, and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Now, what is Massa? Well, this is the place where they said... Uh, that uh, that God had not been with them this whole time because they were thirsty. And Moses was told to go and smite a rock, and water came out of the rock. In fact, it's told specifically to us that they they made the statement in that in, in that uh, in that passage: Is the Lord really with us? If He's really with us, He'll give us water right here and right now. They tempted him. They said, well, God isn't protecting us like he promised. He's not doing what we want him to do. When we want him to do it, we'll force his hand. Is God really with us? Now, of course God is with you. You just crossed the Red Sea. I mean, it opened right up in front of you. You know, you've been eating manna every morning. You can't explain that. He made the waters, the bitter waters of Mara sweet. And, and, and now is God really with us? They were tempting God, trying to force God to do things their way. By the way, I think a lot of people sometimes pray this way. If I just have enough faith, then I can make God do whatever my prayer request is. <laughs> That's not how prayer works, right? Prayer is, I trust God to do what is right, and I'm delivering this care over to him. Now, Lord, you do what's right with this thing. And whatever you do, I trust you with it, right? Um, so, the point is, Layer upon layer, Christ knows the word of God. Of course, no surprise there. He responds to the, the complaint, the, the, the temptation of the devil that says you should force God's hand by giving him a passage where that is literally called tempting God and is, and is um, uh, defeated in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. So, now... The test has come against the Holy Spirit. It's been defeated by the Word of God. The test has come against the Father. It's been defeated by the Word of God. He's attempted to get Jesus to deny uh, the leading of the Spirit. He's attempted to get Jesus to deny the sovereignty of the Father. Now he's going to take his last-ditch effort. Here's, here's the last, the final plan. Verse 8, And again the devil taken him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto them, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, let's first deal with the head-scratcher 
um, that the, the question that always comes to our minds as we're reading this, how in the world does the devil think this is going to work? I mean, does he really even have all the kingdoms of the world that he can give them to Jesus? How in the world is this? I mean, you know, when God created the world, he gave it to men to, you know, to have dominion over it. How is, how is it that Satan thinks that he has dominion over the world? And why, why is it in the Bible that he's called the prince of the, of the power of the air? You know, the God of this world. What? What's going on here? Well, surely God did deliver his creation to men. But men are easily tempted, as the devil has proved over and over and over again. And so, if the devil can get men to do whatever he wants, he really kind of controls the creation that they were given dominion over. And so, the devil seems to be implying here to Jesus, if you will worship me, then I'll tempt everybody to follow you. You know, I can tempt them to do wrong, I can tempt them to follow you, all I want. You can almost hear the desperation in the voice of old Lucifer here. All I want is for you to worship me. I wish you would just, for a second, for one split second, would you just worship me? Which, of course, was his goal all the way from the beginning. If only I could have the worship that is owed to God. And now, he's tempting Christ himself, saying, is, is this not what you deserve, all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus? Are, are you not the Christ? Are you not going to set up the kingdom of God and reign over all the kingdoms of the world? I'll give it to you. But I've got to have that worship. <laughs> um, nice try. Uh, Jesus says unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This is also Deuteronomy chapter 6, and just two verses before what we just read. It says this, uh, we'll back up to verse 12. Uh, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are around about you. And he goes on to say, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee. Jesus says, Satan, it is written, thou shalt not, uh, that thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He's now defeated the devil with three passages of scripture from Deuteronomy. The devil attempts to offer him all the kingdoms of the world. Do you love these people? I'll stop tempting them. I'll, matter of fact, I'll, I'll help you. I'll help them all come to salvation. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. All right, Satan. Nice try. But Jesus is going to have all of the kingdoms of the world. He's going to get it. He's not going to need the devil's help. In fact, if you will um, indulge me just to turn to one more passage as we've kind of gone long tonight. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It says in verse 5, Let this mind be, uh, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, 
being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That, that phrase literally just means he doesn't have to rob it from God. He is equal with God. He doesn't think it's something he has to reach for and grab. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. There's his humanity. This is what's on display in Matthew chapter 4. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. There he is, obedient to the Father, all the way unto death, even the death of the cross. Not just any death, specifically the death that the Father had for him. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Christ has accomplished in his final victory. His first victory was a temptation uh, to accomplish it all early. Jesus said, no, I'll do it the Father's way. And the Father's way included redemption for mankind. You know, the devil probably, I imagine, the devil couldn't quite grasp what the Father had in mind. Because the devil knew that no matter what uh, the people did, they were all deserving of hell that was created for the devil and his angels because they rebelled against God. And all of the people had already rebelled against God. It's too late doesn't matter if the devil gives them all the Jesus right now. There's no salvation for them. Jesus had to go to the cross, which, of course, is the final victory over the devil. And the resurrection, of course, when he rose from the dead. Look at what it says in verse 11, and we'll close with this. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. The devil leaves, just as James 4 tells us, resist the devil, he will flee from you. He flees, and angels come and minister to Christ, strengthening him so that he can continue on his way. Now, there are many, many applications that we can draw from this. Because, of course, Jesus was suffering as a man. He was the representation of us. In fact, it, it is said to us that we, as, if, as Christians, bear the righteousness of Christ. This victory that Christ won over the devil has been placed in our account. If we're saved, and our failures in our encounters with the devil have been placed on Christ's, when he died on the cross. This, he, he did not just beat the devil, you know, just for the sake of beating him. He will do that one day, but uh, he didn't just beat him for the sake of beating him. He beat him on our account. He beat him as us. He beat him as a man. He came... In the likeness of human flesh, and he had victory over after victory after victory after victory from this moment all the way to the resurrection. He had victory, and all the way to this day, that victory remains. He has won the victory over death and hell. He's freed us from sin. He's given us the ability to also go forth and resist the devil. Something to remember as we close that Christ gave us his righteousness, which is why it is our task to go out and be righteous. Right? Now, we don't go out and, and live righteously because that gives us heaven. Because that's Christ's righteousness. He gave us all of his victory over Satan, all of his rightness, all of his resistance of temptation is all applied to our account. 
And so we get to go to heaven. We don't go out and act righteously because that gives us something, some special favor with God. Instead, we go out and act righteously because Christ has given us his righteousness. How else should I act? Should I go out and act like the devil? No. Now I'm going to go out and live and mirror Christ's actions because they've already been applied to my account. That is my standing before the Father. So it should be my walk on the earth. If my standing before the Father is, re is the, the righteous actions of Christ who resisted the devil, then my walk on the earth should be the righteous actions of Christ resisting the devil. And there's something very important that we need to resist the devil. I, I know I said I'd close, and I, a preacher should never say the word close if he's not actually going to close. I, I get that. But I've got to, I'd like to give this to you, if you don't mind. The thing that was needed to defeat the devil was not, was not the name of Jesus. A lot of people say, just, just say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke thee. Well, you know, you could try that, I suppose. We don't know that. that that's something people made up. But what was needed to defeat the devil was the word of God. In Ephesians, I'll read this very quickly. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, you're very familiar with the passage, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 6, we read, Finally, my brethren, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What is the armor of God? Verse 12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the real war that's taking place. So what should we do? Verse 13. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. Well, great. Great. What is the armor of God? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. I want you to watch everything about the armor of God. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt with truth. Well, what, what is truth? Thy word is truth. <laughs> Thy word is truth. Great. You stole my thunder there, brother. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> Great. My word is truth. The word of God. What's the next thing? And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, how do we know what God wants us to do? It's, well, it's from the law of God. It's from, it's from the word of God. That's how we know how to be righteous. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, what gospel? Well, the one that's declared to us in the word of God. And above all, taking the shield of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the God of the Bible that's declared to us in the pages of Scripture. <laughs> right? This is all about the Bible. This is all about God's Word. That's how we defeat the devil. The next thing, uh, wherewithal you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the witch, wicked and take the helmet of salvation. Well, where do we find salvation? Well, it's in the Word of God. Right? And the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? Well, it says right there, which is the Word of God. Why? Because the Spirit wrote the Word of God. Right? So we're taking the Spirit and lunging it into the heart of the devil when we are using the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Here's the key to fighting against the devil. It's sitting in your lap. It's the Word of God. This is why I, in, I intend, as long as I have breath in my lungs, to preach and teach and help people understand better the Word of God. I can, I can get up in front of people and I can talk about all these things that will make your life better, but what I want people to know is the Word of God, because that's the fight we're in. 
We are not in a physical war. We're in a spiritual one. And because Christ has already won the victory, we must follow in his steps. We must know this book. And we must use it. We must never back down from it. We must preach it to everyone who will hear. We must not be ashamed of it. We should make it our belt, our center, the, the center on which we, we base everything else. It's all this book. The Word of God is the answer. Mm -hmm. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the victory that you have won. Thank you for helping us understand a little better this evening your Word. And with that, as we understand it a little better every day, day by day, I pray that you'd help us to become better soldiers in the army of God, resisting the devil, preaching the scriptures, being confident in your truth, and following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name.